0: Welcome to Art Conversations and I am your host, Lisa Jane Irvine. As a practicing visual artist, I've had the opportunity to meet many interesting individuals along the way. Every path I've ventured down has provided me with a greater knowledge in the arts as well as a vast array of experiences that have helped to shape my practice both in and out of the studio. I encourage you to grab a cup of tea or even a coffee and settle in as we begin my conversations with my guests who are working, practicing, exploring, even playing in the arts. Lila Lewis Irving has an MFA in fine art from the University of Wisconsin. She has been in numerous exhibitions, including two at the Art Gallery Mississauga. Lila's work has been widely collected in both national and international collections. Along with her exhibition history, Lila has an extensive teaching career in Ontario and Quebec with over 20 years at the Halliburton School of Art and Design. Lila is a member of the Ontario Society of Artists On her website, Lila describes her painting as an energetic and an intense process which results in emotional and abstracted work which is deeply felt. Today we're going to discuss this energetic brushwork and her new COVID portrait series. Please help me welcome Lila Lewis-Irving to the podcast. Morning Lila. Morning. How are you today?
1: I'm fine Lisa. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Oh, I'm so excited to have you here and to be able to talk about your new series. Wonderful. So I thought we'd start off with maybe you giving us a little bit of your history. You were born in New York City, and now you live in Mississauga, Canada.
1: And you're trying to find out how I ended up in Mississauga. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite a journey. It is quite a journey. Well, after I left New York City to go to school in Iowa, Mm and then I went to school there, got a Master of Fine Arts in Dramatic Art, Scenery and Costumes, which is is very related to fine art. And part of the reasons why I like to paint so large is that I used to paint scenery, design and paint scenery. That completely makes sense now. It it does. It does. And the dramatic gave me kind of a flair for doing my art in, in, you know, in many ways. And then I actually taught in dramatic arts in Illinois for a while. And after a year of that, I decided I didn't want to be, this is very interesting, I didn't want to be part of a group art, which is what theater is. And so I decided I I was always an artist ever since I was about two, but I didn't take it seriously. And after a year of teaching in Illinois, I decided I I wanted to be a fine artist. I wanted to be a painter and I would have to go back to school. (laughs) which is what I did, and I took myself off to the University of Wisconsin, which was always a very fine school and very close to where I was in Illinois. <laughs> this is quite a journey. Anyway, I end up in the University of Wisconsin in Madison, a very pretty university town, and I'm embarking on my second Master of Fine Arts. I'm getting there. While I was studying there, it took me three years to get my MFA. I met a man who was an archaeologist, and we got married. And his first job offer after he got his doctorate in archaeology, Arctic archaeology, was in Canada. Mm-hmm. So we went off to, in 1964, long time ago, to live in Ottawa and lived there for five years. And after that time, he had a job offer to be a full professor at the University of Toronto. And that's how we got to Toronto and Mississauga. (laughs) It's a long story, but that's how it happened.
0: But it's a good one, and it makes a lot of sense. When I first met you, Lila, you were doing non-objective paintings and a lot of pouring and dripping, but I could see where that dramatic background comes into the performance part of that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, because painting scenery is a very physical thing and very big, and scenery is way bigger than you are, Mm -hmm. and I always wanted to do paintings that were bigger than me. so. I never knew this part of your history, so it makes a lot of sense now. It's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah,
0: and we've talked about so many different things. You didn't know this part. Yeah. I didn't know this part at all, so I'm learning
1: something along with everyone else. Good, good, good. Also, I've, I've always loved dressing up because of, I used to design costumes for the stage. So,
0: Well, if anybody hasn't met you, you have the best jewelry, that's for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's all part of the theatrical background, Yes. <laughs>
0: And recently, you've kind of shifted your focus. You're doing
1: these COVID portraits. Well, it was kind of interesting. I, I was doing a non-objective, oh boy, since the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's what happened was COVID. And I began to, you know, feel the kind of the sorrow of the world. And I began to express myself with faces. And the first faces I did were made-up faces, I didn't have any reference of anybody. I just th- threw paint on the canvas. They weren't big, they were two by two feet. And I just made up faces in kind of uncomfortable looking expressions. Uh, two by two would still be larger than life. Uh, yes, you're right, you're right. When a face becomes larger than life, it, it gets an added drama to it. And so I did, I did about two dozen of these made up faces. And then as COVID came on and on, and I wasn't going out at all, and then I decided, well, I was going to do operatic faces. because operatic singers are very dramatic, and I love opera, and they were to express pain and sorrow, which is not hard to find in opera. Mm -hmm. So I would watch these operas. The Metropolitan Opera was giving free opera performances every single night during all of COVID for a year and a half. And I would actually photograph the singers right from the screen. And uh, then I would keep them on my iPad, take them up to my studio, and I would paint them. And so I did operas, opera singers, male and female, I think for about the first six months of the COVID. And then I decided I was going to expand and just do interesting faces of people I admired. Mm -hmm. So I went to Google Images and got, all kinds of wonderful photographs of artists, painters, playwrights, musicians, the works, people I admired. And then I started to paint those. And this ended up in many different parts of the COVID series, like there's 16 series, musicians, painters, artists, so on, so on. And I got to um, about in the end of may i got to about 200 roughly 24 by 30 some were a little larger some were a little smaller and after 200 i said i think i've done it i think i'll take a break this summer and then go on to something new so Mm -hmm. that's how the series came about and do you have some
0: favorites that you did that you were like at the end of that series or the end of a couple of portraits you're like i really like this one
1: yeah, it's kind of sporadic. Some of the early ones I like, some of the later ones I like. But what was happening, and this is totally fascinating, they're they're all done in black, white, and gray, and with a lot of very, very thick pumice gel. You know what that stuff is. And these were done without brushes. These were done with great big knives, palette knives, and and big scrapers up to mm-hmm. you know four or five inches wide. And I was putting the paint on with these trowel-like instruments. And they were becoming very sculptural. And the progression from the beginning to the end, about a year and a half, they got much, much more sculptural. And I ended up thinking as a sculptor, I was actually feeling as if I were forming a cheek as a sculptor. That's really interesting. It is. With very thick paint, I was using a half gallon of pumice gel on each painting. So for anybody who doesn't know what pumice gel is, can you explain what that is? Yeah, it's a it's a tank product. It's not real pumice It's made by golden and it has the look of pumice, which is a gritty, thick substance, very rough and textured, heavy, heavy, heavy pigment, very grainy and it's a kind of a very pale gray in color. And so the texture of it allows you to actually sculpt on the surface.
0: Are you working on canvas or boards?
1: On canvas. And I was amazed at how well this very thick pumice, sometimes it's almost an inch off the canvas, was adhering to the canvas. It was no problem. I imagine they're becoming quite heavy too at that point. Very, very heavy. And they had to be done flat because if, if they were done vertically then the, the whole the pumice would slide down.
0: It was going to be my next question. Were you working at an easel or flat? So no, it
1: had to be flat. And they took three days to dry because of the thickness. Yeah. So when you're doing the pumice, are you mixing your paint pigment into it? No, I used pretty much use the pumice as it comes. Sometimes I would run out of pumice. I was getting deliveries from the art store. Like every week I was getting cartons full of canvases and paint and sometimes i run out of pumice and golden was out of it and i had a substitute to white paint mm-hmm. which i used very very thick thick i added um, thickness to it and so these paintings have a very different quality they don't have the gritty pumice like quality it's just thick white paint i prefer the pumice to the white ones but i, I had to keep painting and i was out of paint so <laughs> I know a few times during COVID, I was running out of supplies,
0: and it was hard to get things. So I'm impressed you had so many deliveries.
1: <laughs> it was very hard. I discovered all kinds of new art stores that kept sending me things, and it was uh, it was really interesting. These big boxes were piled up at my door every week. It was, uh, yeah. I spent about seventeen thousand dollars on art supplies.
0: what's your vision for these do you think you'll go back to them at all I mean you said already
1: you think you're going to go in a different direction I might go back eventually but I think I want to get a little more into the non-objective I was thinking because I love calligraphy very minimal calligraphic marks on canvas Mm -hmm. I might do a series a calligraphic series but using color this time So do you step
0: away from your work, Lila, and and let it sit for a bit and then examine it as a whole, or do you just keep working forward? What's your process in terms of that? I
1: I always, I try very, very hard to do it in one shot. I don't like fixing. I never fix or correct. (laughs) I would rather start over than have to fix a painting. This is surprising to a lot of artists who spend a lot of time fixing, but Mm -hmm. I never do. The non-objective, when I the very large ones, I can't do in one shot because I have to give them a little bit of drying time before the next color. But I would rather work on a size mm-hmm. that I can do in one shot because I I feel the immediacy of my work is the most important thing. What's a good size for that for you? I think maybe two by three
0: feet something like that I know I've had the privilege of being in your studio and some of your canvases are taller than me so oh you d- yes you do work quite large it's interesting to hear you talk about the different sizes you're working on and and what they mean in your process and
1: well I have a real big problem now my studio in this 200 canvases sitting in my studio I barely have the floor space to work now <laughs> your floor space is incredible I now have room for a big canvas on the floor for one. I used to have room for three.
0: So those 200 canvases, they've really taken up the space. They have.
1: They have. I don't know what to do about it either.
0: <laughs> well, it's time to find a show for them. It sounds like the perfect opportunity.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd love to have a show. I, I wonder who would be interested in showing these mm-hmm. rather gr- gr- gruesome portraits. <laughs> it's interesting if you
0: could line them up or arrange them in a way that you could see them collectively, you really get a different
1: perspective on what the journey was. Well, I think it would be fascinating to have them on a very large wall, butted against each other. No space, just covering the wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling. I think that would be amazing. Oh,
0: that would be incredible to see. Yeah, for sure. <laughs>
1: You've also talked a little bit
0: about going back to do your MFA, and I know that had a big impact on your direction. When you were doing that work, were you doing figurative work at that time, or was it more landscape? What kind of work were you doing during that time, and how did you evolve?
1: Well, I started two things. I had always loved watercolor, and I started doing a lot of watercolors. And in my studio time at the university, I was doing a lot of flowers and still life, working from real things. And at the same time, I got heavily into woodcut printing, carving and printing. And I still have these woodcut prints that I did at the university and also did in, the, in through the 70s. Mm-hmm. So the printmaking was a big part of my MFA degree at the time. Is it something you'd ever revisit? I think I've done that. <laughs> The 70s, 10 years in the 70s was my woodcut time. And then I went um, back to painting and I went to, I was still doing subject matter. I was doing landscapes and seascapes and flowers and still life. All through the 80s, like it's kind of interesting, the periods change, woodcuts in the 70s, work on canvas and paper on the 80s, but still subject matter.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: 1990, I decided I was going to try what I called abstract, which I now call non-objective. 1990, I decided I was going to be an abstract painter, (laughs) out of the blue. (laughs) Part of the reason was I felt a little stifled with subject matter. I felt it wasn't no longer a challenge it was becoming easy, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, it's the next thing, what to push yourself to. What to push. And growing up in New York City at the time, little after the time of the abstract expressionists were there and showing, and I was a great admirer of them. And then it comes to 1990 and I said, well, I think I want to do what they did. <laughs> it, 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 kind of a, a long distance in time, but that's how it happened. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned the Abstract Expressionists.
0: I I know you've had the opportunity to do a course with Helen Frankenthaler. I did. So was that
1: influential as well as part of your process? It it totally was. I read about a competition. There was actually a competition to get into her class, which was held in in Santa Fe, New Mexico in 1991. And so I applied and I got in. I couldn't believe it. Because I didn't have any abstract work to show, but somehow I got in.
0: (laughs) I'm sure her process and and the way she works with the fluid oil must have been influential in in setting you on your path.
1: It totally was, because I had never thought of working on the floor, Mm -hmm. and that's what we all did. That's the way we had to work on the floor. We didn't have a lot of space. We had enough space to have a four-foot by eight-foot piece of plywood on the floor. And we could paint it that big four by eight, which was huge to me <laughs> and so this workshop lasted a month, and I painted on the floor and I must say I wasn't very good in the class. <laughs> I found it difficult
0: <laughs> I would say it's a it's a huge shift to go from what you were doing, but it obviously resonated, and it you kept going i I kept going, but it was it was a struggle. <laughs> I think we all go through that at times as artists. It's the evolution of our own process and figuring out what works and what doesn't.
1: That's that's right. That's right. And she was tough. And she, she didn't like my work at all. But at the end of the session, the last critique, she said, you've come a long way. It was nice to hear because I started from rather nothing.
0: <laughs> Have you read the book, Ninth Street Women? She's featured in that.
1: I haven't. I must. I must read that.
0: I think you'd probably have a greater appreciation for this section about her because you've met her. I would. She she was not easy. <laughs> and to help others and teach others is really valuable. That's right. So, That's right. Well you would know a lot about that because you've taught for a very long time at the Halliburton School of the Arts.
1: Yes. Oh I, I really love teaching. I was able to kind of communicate my energy. When you took my class, I wasn't teaching the non-objective, is that right? I, the first time I took it, we were doing non-objective. Because,
0: I think it was about 15 years ago.
1: Yeah, I started off teaching there with subject matter. I would do landscaping, stuff like that. Very, very abstracted, but still subject matter. And then I decided that I wanted to teach the, the non-objective there, and they, they went for it. And I think about the last 10 years I taught there were just the non-objective.
0: It was a lot of fun. The one thing I learned from you, Lila, was about the importance of design and composition. Yes, you really broke that down. It was like nobody had ever taught it to me before, and yet I was teaching high school. And
1: it was like a light bulb moment for me. It's so it's so important. It's kind of interesting that these were my weak points. Mm-hmm. So I went out of my way to correct it. And what I did is I, I just looked at paintings, historical paintings from the past, <laughs> old ones, new ones, more recent ones, and I would analyze them for design and composition to figure out how to get better at it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot you could look at from old masters right through to contemporary
1: painters. That's right, that's right. And so it became so important to me that when I started the non-objective and said, people say, oh, you're just throwing paint around. But no, 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 not at all. I have a highly developed sense of structure and architecture. I like that word architecture because it really is like you're building.
0: It is, it totally is. You had us when we started exercises was to limit color yes and just focus on design
1: yes this is another problem with a lot of artists they have no sense of dark and light and dark and light listen to this it's important it's way more important than color but I think when you see all the colors,
0: you, you almost get entranced by all the colors. <laughs> yes, yes. So did you learn that then from looking at other artists' work, that you can strip away the color and it's really about the contrast, the light? Yes.
1: Well, well I began to think of my favorite artists, Motherwell and Franz Klein, and mm. they, they weren't using color at all. And then I was reading sculptors' comments and saying, you know, these, these painters, they just depend on color. That's Mm -hmm. not what art is about. And then I began to think, I think those sculptors have something there. (laughs) And that's how the importance of dark and light became very important to me. Although I do love color, Mm -hmm. I think I'm happy in black and white too. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. But your color schemes have been very natural.
1: Earth tones. You use a lot of earth tones in your work. I do. (laughs) But I also use a lot of brighter colors. But I Mm -hmm. I think I have more sensitivity to the uh, earthiness
0: Is there a color that it just excites you when
1: you see it? Well, I think reds and red oranges are got to be the most exciting colors. Red is the most dominant color. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Nothing comes close. And there's certain colors that I don't enjoy using, like certain yellows and greens don't sit right with me. Mm But one should choose colors for their expressiveness, not for whether you like them or not. So when you sit down to do a work, do you intuitively
0: then choose your colors or do you decide that?
1: I I tend to isolate three to five colors. I, I must have two dozen colors sitting ready to go in big pots, but I always isolate three to five because I tend not to like paintings that have too many colors in them.
0: And does that come from looking at art? When you were analyzing, did you start to notice that you were attracted to works that were limited in color?
1: No, I don't think that was that was a factor. I I, I think it's more e- easier for me to resolve a painting if I don't if I use 10 colors it's hard to do. <laughs> but color is fascinating and because I paint so wet, there's another reason for limiting colors. The colors move into each other and create other colors so you're getting complicated anyway.
0: For your inspiration, I know music's a big part of your life. You love music. You mentioned earlier you love opera. Yes. Is that what's on in the studio when you're painting? Do you have something you love to listen to?
1: Well, it's it's so fascinating because I usually listen to vocal um, music. But the thing is, it's on, but I'm not listening to it. <laughs> it's kind of going through my body. It's influencing everything I do, but I'm not Paying any attention to it, because if I'm listening to the music, I can't be attentive to my painting. So it, it kind of goes through me, and it it kind of frees me up. It becomes quite magic up there in the studio.
0: In uh, 2012, you had a big retrospective. What was that yeah. like having a retrospective of your work?
1: Well, that that was a great honor. It also was a great problem of um, having all this work and having to what do you pick to put in a retrospective? And luckily, the the curator, Stuart Keeler, was very good, and he, he picked the work. There wasn't a heck of a lot of older work because he really wanted to show the newer work, which is fine. So in a way, it wasn't a total retrospective, but I couldn't complain about that because I wanted to show the, the newer, larger pieces, and they were very, very large, and so it had to be limited to the amount that could be shown. Yeah, you had a couple of pieces that encompassed large
0: portions of the wall. Yes. Several canvases put together for one piece. So um, yes. when you stood in front of them as the viewer, they filled your whole site. Yes. It was which was wonderful because to get to stand in front of your pieces like that and to be able to step back in the gallery and see it as well.
1: Yes. It's hard for me to view my work, even in my studio. Part of the reason for doing these panels instead of one big canvas is I can't get a huge canvas up the stairs. So I have to do them in sections. And then I have to store them in sections. So I hardly ever get to see them. <laughs> As a whole piece. As a whole piece. But you do work flat, so you see
0: it while it's evolving. Yes, so that yes. Must, that must only change your perspective to see a work while you are painting it flat. And yes. then to actually see it on a gallery wall.
1: Yes. Yeah, the problem is you have to get your eyes far away from the painting. And I can't work with them, you know, horizontal. I mean, vertical, because I can't, they're too wet. If I were working that way, I could step way back and see them. But working when they're on the floor, I can only get as far away as my eyes. And sometimes it's not far enough. So (laughs) you have to climb a ladder to look at it.
0: (laughs) I was going to ask what your trick is for that, but you just answered it. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so You keep a ladder in your studio so you can I do. look I do. over
1: top. I do. But I, I have a balance problem now, so I'm no longer able to climb the ladder. So I have to trust my knowledge now.
0: <laughs> you have a vast array of knowledge, Lila, so I'm sure
1: it works. I to, yeah, I have to count on that, that it's going to be okay.
0: <laughs> you mentioned that you liked Klein and Motherwell.
1: Who are yes. some contemporary artists that inspire you? Well, the best living artist is the German. You know who I mean? Anselm Kiefer? Yes. He is by far the best living artist and has been for a long time. I just worship him. What is it you like about his work? I like the scale. I like the gravity. I like the sensitivity. I like the humanity. And also he's a master of earth color. Mm -hmm. He definitely is. And I definitely relate to that. I can see also the
0: texture that he the uses. The
1: texture, the texture yeah. too. Because yeah. with, with what you're doing now, it just makes complete sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he's an interesting man and he, um, I don't know how much you know about him, but he was born in 1945 in Germany and grew up trying to figure in his own head what the Germans had done. And it was very difficult for him. I think this is this is why he paints the way he does. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Lila, you're taking a break for summer. And when would you normally go back to working? Would it be September? It'd be September. And so is there a process or a way you go back to the studio, a set of rituals,
1: or you just walk in and start? It, it is a ritual. You know, Mark Roscoe, he's one of my favorite artists. He treated it as a job. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. He He, he worked in Manhattan. He had a studio in Manhattan and I don't know where he came from, but he rode the subway every morning in a a suit and a tie and a shirt and he'd go to his studio and he'd put on his studio clothes and he'd paint all day and then he'd put his suit back on, take the subway, Mm -hmm. go back home. You actually have to have a routine. (laughs) So what does a routine look like for you? For me, it's getting up pretty early, taking a long time to wake up, have breakfast, play with my iPad, and then simply at 10 o'clock or whatever time close to that, I just have to go up to the studio. And you almost have to force yourself because it's really hard work. You know what what I'm saying? Yeah, I totally understand. It's really hard. And you, you have to say, yes, I have to, because there's no... There's no inspiration. doesn't exist. Inspiration starts after you started working.
0: I was going to say, I've heard people say you have to show up to do the work, and then you the work simply, comes.
1: You simply show up. It's really, that's what it is. And so many artists have said this. <laughs> do you
0: document your process in any way? Like, have you historically documented that? But is there anything that you do to document what you've done or keep that process
1: I don't. I, I have one video of me painting. There should be more. I should have had videos done me doing these COVID faces. I didn't. I should have because it's a really interesting process. Totally interesting. Something that's coming this fall. Well, I have to start doing them again then. I, I might just do a few just to get somebody who might tape them because I I think the process should be seen. But I have cataloged everything.
0: That's impressive because that's one of my weaknesses as an artist
1: well, the best way is to photograph right after you've done it. I didn't do that, and so I had to photograph literally hundreds of works, oh. which is very, very time-consuming. I have over 5,000 pieces of art in my house, and it's a long process, and they're all catalogued now. It's very time-consuming because you have to photograph it, then you have to edit it mm-hmm. and make it make it look like the painting because sometimes the photograph doesn't look like the painting, but... You can make it look like the painting. And then you have to put the date and the medium and the uh, size and the year and all that stuff. And do you ever have anybody help you with this? Just- I do it myself. That's <laughs> incredible. Lila, well, I definitely
0: need to take a page for your book on that one and get into the studio and start documenting.
1: Yeah, I've learned how to photograph. I did have a photographer for a while mm-hmm. and I watched him very carefully and I learned how to do it. And I, I can photograph pretty well now. It's, it's not all that hard to do.
0: <laughs> Just as we're wrapping up, I thought one final question. If you were to inspire young artists and tell them the great book to read and where to start, what would you recommend? Oh. I know there's a lot. There is a lot. What, do you have a favorite book? We could even go that way.
1: Well, I've always liked The, the Natural Way to Draw and the author has skipped my mind you can probably find that out but anyway it's drawing is is really an important part of painting and although painting and drawing are not the same i think drawing and being able to understand how to draw is is very very important and it's kind of why i've never left the figurative stuff because that involves you know being able to draw to a great extent i i do think you can be a painter without knowing how to draw but i I think it helps a lot if you can it's good skill to have
0: yes yes somebody was thinking i want to go into painting and they're just starting as you said earlier people think you just throw paint around and it works
1: yeah (laughs) we recommend they take a step back and start to develop some drawing skills then I think so. I think drawing skills and maybe a few classes. I do not think you need a university degree in art to do it, but I do think you have to do it a lot. I think you have to look at a lot of paintings too, of other people's paintings. So you would encourage people to go to gallery, definitely start drawing and take classes
0: and figure out what you like. Yes, yes. I think that's great advice. It's always good to be learning.
1: And also, you have to make sacrifices, monetary ones, because it's very expensive thing to do. I've never, ever denied myself art supplies. I've denied myself other stuff because it's very, very, very important. You have to waste a lot of art supplies mm-hmm. to, to get anywhere. I think the,
0: the best advice I'd ever been given was paint like you can afford it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, it's wonderful. <laughs> it was freeing. I got to just go for it. I can always yes. buy it. Yes. And the the first 2,000 paintings are the most difficult. Then I have a little ways to go. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I'm at 2,000
0: yet. (laughs) I'm not sure what the count is. Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much, Lila. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Good. I hope it was useful. Yeah, it was great. I enjoyed hearing where your story started. I, I had no idea about the the dramatic background, but it makes so much sense. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well thanks. Thanks for choosing me. <laughs> okay, thank you again. Okay. Bye.
0: Thank you for tuning in to our conversations with Lisa Jane Irvine. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and hit the like button. And don't forget to check out my website, Facebook, and Instagram accounts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.